This is I Spy, the show from foreign policy where spies tell their stories. We're following the vehicle, and he pulls into Zarkawi pulls into this farm essentially with like a grove of trees that are set up to block the wind for all the buildings around there. The canopy of the trees, we can't see through it. So we don't know what where he's gone at this point. He got out and ran. And we couldn't see him. We don't know, have any way to tell the special operations forces on the ground like which way he went. Um, they get to the pickup and, you know, capture all the belongings and everything and confirm it was him in the car because um, he, he left everything behind. But, yeah, that was that was incredibly infuriating to get that close to him without actually capturing him. From Foreign Policy, welcome to I Spy, real-life spy stories told by the people who were there. Each week, we feature one former intelligence operative from somewhere around the world describing one operation. I'm Margot Martindale. On today's show, Nada Bakos, a CIA targeter, led a two-year hunt for a man in Iraq. Abu Musab Zarqawi, the al-Qaeda jihadist, had carried out some of the deadliest attacks of the Iraq war against Americans and Iraqis. Bakos worked on the operations side of the agency while targeting Zarqawi, but she started her career with the CIA as an analyst. Her story begins in 2003, after the first round of America's major combat operations in Iraq. After the start of the war, they were looking for volunteers that would go to Iraq in order to help continue to work on whether or not we can find information that ties al-Qaeda and 9-11 to Iraq. So our team had to volunteer, and we were sending one person at a time, and I just volunteered to, to be the second person on our team to fly there. The agency had started sending analysts into conflict zones and war zones um, prior to 9-11, but after 9-11, they needed that subject matter expertise on the ground, so they sent them into Afghanistan, and then they sent them into Iraq. Analysts were working alongside the operations colleagues because it was just much more efficient to do that on the ground versus waiting for that information to come back to headquarters. I hadn't been to a war zone before, so I wasn't really sure what to expect. But I end up on a CIA plane. They load us on with all the cargo. They strap in, you know, some Toyota pickup trucks, and we're sitting within the cargo hold of this airplane. And I'm looking around thinking, everybody in here must know a lot more about (laughs) what to expect than I do. Because I really had no clue. I didn't have a lot of training before I went because it it was just a very quick, you know, we need analysts in country right now. And my then department head wasn't super interested in me attending all the weapons training that I needed prior to going because he wanted us to be there doing the analytic work versus training for an ops type of of role. So I was a little nervous, but I actually got to sit up front with the pilots for a little while in a jump seat. And part of it 
part of that trip that I got to sit up front uh, was landing into Baghdad. And I started seeing essentially what looked like fireworks and knew it wasn't fireworks. So I asked them just to confirm my suspicion and it was tracer fire that people were shooting up at us from the ground as we were coming into Baghdad. So that was my first experience with the war. So my job in Iraq was to continue to look for information that would tie Iraq to al-Qaeda or 9-11. There were obviously uh, a burgeoning insurgency. We know that now. At the time, the administration was not interested in having that conversation. We couldn't even use the term insurgency or insurgent. But my main focus, personally, was Zarqawi. Was Zarqawi still in the country? What was Ansar al-Islam up to? And what terrorist plots or operations are being conducted currently? So by that time, the agency knew quite a lot about Zarqawi. He grew up in Jordan. That's where he ended up developing his first, you know, sort of localized group. He had been wreaking havoc in in Jordan in the 90s. There was several things that he had been tied to as far as terrorist activity in Jordan. Because his focus initially was mainly the Jordanian kingdom. He had started to build a training camp um, in Afghanistan that was kind of co-located with al-Qaeda, but it was a separate camp. Al-Qaeda wasn't interested in him at the time. He wasn't interested in their agenda. They were sharing, you know, space, probably using each other's training, you know, obstacle courses that we see all these videos from. You know, they had a shared ideology in the sense that they're both extremists, but he had a completely different focus. And then he ended up, after 9-11 and moving out of Afghanistan, he traversed through Iran and ended up in northern Iraq. And that was the concern. He was co-located with a local terrorist group called Ansar al-Islam. And he started building this bioweapons factory, essentially. That actually sounds much more salacious than it actually was. It was a really rudimentary effort at trying to develop bioweapons. So I ended up having to debrief a lot of detainees that came in. I would look through the list, see if there's anybody that made sense for me to look at and to ask, you know, questions about terrorism. But I was also um, working with the what we called high value detainees. So those from Saddam's upper echelon of his government. Tariq Aziz was Saddam Hussein's foreign minister. I had a few conversations with him. The first one that stood out was when he was actually in the hospital for essentially heat stroke. So my job at the time was to go in and just talk to him about the topics of terrorism and any of Iraq's connections to terrorism. Well, I found that Tariq Aziz is not one for um, mincing words. So he told me essentially what I already knew about Iraq's Connections with different terrorist regional organizations, which were pretty loose. 
and the fact that they didn't have a connection with Al-Qaeda Central and why they didn't have an interest from an ideology perspective and from a security perspective. That would have put him on the radar, Saddam on the radar of a lot of Western countries in a way that he did not want the attention. He was more interested in being the strong man, the dictator. Giving any power to Al-Qaeda would have been like antithetical to everything that he wanted and believed. In the course of that whole conversation, of course, I was getting the sense that he was kind of trying to recruit me to have empathy and sympathy. And I think, um, which wasn't surprising to me, he's he's of the generation that thinks all women are empathetic and maternal. But when he realized I wasn't going to play that game, then he just started acting like a belligerent nursing home patient, opening his hospital gown. He's sitting there in his underwear and just starts flapping it. And he's clearly trying to get a reaction from me. And I didn't give it to him. I just sat there and just continued to ask questions like he wasn't naked. So that was probably the most interesting conversation in or interview that I had while I was there. A lot of people I talked to were just Iraqis trying to figure out how to make this work, right? They have all of a sudden all of their resources and infrastructure are basically shut down. We've removed all the bathists out of their jobs. So it's like taking everybody who's been working in the U.S. government and just firing them all and expecting the country to function. It's not that these people were loyal necessarily to Saddam. It's that they had a job within the government. So on one hand, you're just looking at people who are just trying to survive. And then on the other, there were people who were functioning as insurgents and or working with some of the foreign fighters that were now streaming into the country. So I worked a lot with special forces. We were working a lot of the same operations. We were doing a lot of the targeting and analytic work. And um, it just happened that were some, some CIA officers were on some of these raids. And so I ended up joining. It wasn't something that you normally would do as an analyst. And it's not really something I'm sure after I left was uh, standard protocol. But it was pretty much left to the working level to figure out how we were going to do all of this at the time I was there in Iraq. So we just kind of had carte blanche to figure it out. We'd find a target, somebody of interest. Sometimes it came out of some detainee information that we had or, or another person. And especially at that time, the Iraqi intelligence service was a huge focus because their Iraqi intelligence service was set up to counter invading forces. So they would conduct a lot, of, a lot of terrorist operations. They had a guy who was a bomb maker that was building a lot of the IEDs that we were being confronted with or the military is being confronted with. So we were trying to find him because he was very, very good at his job. And we were making our way essentially from one target to another, trying to figure out where he was located as he kept moving. And one of the targets was, was essentially a relative that we end up finding out um, after we pick him up that he doesn't have a lot of information. But this is essentially like a you know, SWAT team coming into your house in the middle of the night, lining everybody up you know, and interrogating them. Some of these people were valid targets and others were just information collection. And I, I, at the time, felt like this doesn't seem to make sense. You're just alienating people by doing that. You're not 
recruiting them, which is the antithesis of what the CIA does. They recruit people. They spend all of this time trying to convince people and grooming them to work for you so that you can trust them. So the country's already starting to turn against us. This is the wrong approach. So Zarqawi starts conducting terrorist attacks inside of Iraq against coalition forces. He bombs the UN building. He bombs Shia mosques. His strategy is against anybody who he considers an infidel, but his strategy is also just wreaking havoc. So he wants to keep the coalition forces busy. He's hitting civilian targets. He's hitting coalition targets. He's trying to keep everybody focused on just guessing where he's going to go next. So after I returned back to D.C., we found out there had been an American that had been kidnapped by Zarqawi's organization. We had been trying to figure out, of course, where he was located. We were looking for signs of life. His name was Nick Berg. And then one day, a video ended up being released through channels for other jihadist organizations before it hit the public. By that time, I was the lead analyst, essentially, on all the Zarqawi operations issues and ended up having to watch that video because this could lead to clues about who's involved, maybe where they are, and anything else we can discern from the video itself. You know, now we're familiar with the setup where there's men lined up, you know, in front of a black banner. There's a person in an orange jumpsuit kneeling down in front of them. And then, you know, there's a whole speech about just essentially using it as propaganda and recruitment about why they're doing this and their justification for it and why they think it's a show of strength. And then they end up. Uh, killing him toward the end of the video. Nick Berg was probably the first captive that Zarqawi had publicly killed. You're listening to I Spy, a production of Foreign Policy. We'll be right back. Welcome back to I Spy. We return to the story of Nada Bakos as she hunts for the al-Qaeda jihadist Abu Musab Zarqawi in Iraq. By the end of 2004-2005, I had moved into an operations role where I was a targeting officer, and I was heading up the Zarqawi operations branch. And I was responsible for trying to stop him and his organization from conducting operations inside of Iraq and outside of Iraq. And... That sense of responsibility is just completely overwhelming, especially when you're in a situation where it just seems like it's just never ending. They are murdering people at very large numbers. He's going after all these Shia targets. He's killing innocent civilians. He's attacking schools. In that situation where things are moving so quickly, it's hard to have empathy for another human being that does things like that. You know, on the operation side, a targeting officer is actually looking for tactical information that's actionable. So you understand the whole structure of the organization itself, but you're also strategically looking for vulnerabilities and nodes that you can take out to help either air support or 
on the ground special operations forces to conduct capture or kill missions. Periodically, we'd get some semi-credible intel about Zarqawi's locations or movements. And then one day, we got some information that Zarqawi was going to be traveling in a white vehicle. And this time, we had really credible intelligence on Zarqawi's movements. But it was very last minute, like it was going to happen instantaneously. So there was a drone in Iraq, but it was not an armed drone like we hear about all the time now. It just had video capability. So as soon as we were able to figure out where this this pickup was going to be moving from, we had a drone up over that area and then identified the vehicle. So we're, we're following the vehicle. Special Operations Forces is, is trying to scramble up behind him because it's all happening very last minute. And they catch up to him, and then it's a car chase. And he pulls into, Zarqawi pulls into this farm, essentially, with what, you know, being from Montana, we would call a shelter belt, which is like a grove of trees that are set up to block the wind for all the buildings around there. He pulls in, it's um, the canopy of the trees, we can't see through it, so we don't know what where he's gone at this point. He evidently gets out of the vehicle and starts running. And this, this grove of trees extends quite a ways down into this like little valley. So he got out and ran. And we couldn't see him. We don't have any way to tell the special operations forces on the ground like which way he went. They get to the pickup and you know capture all the belongings and everything and confirm it was him in the car because he, he left everything behind. But yeah, that was uh, that was incredibly infuriating to get that close to him without actually capturing him. He left behind a laptop. It was encrypted, but not in a super sophisticated way. So special operations had the laptop, and they were just determined to exploit all of it themselves. Well, that's not their specialty. That CIA, NSA, and even FBI can do that, all of which are plenty available there. We're all co-located together. All he would have had to do is hand it off to the person I have embedded with them sitting there. But instead, they kept it for a couple of weeks. And that was infuriating. There's a lot of this that happens within intergovernment agency fighting. You know, we would have been in it within an hour and been able to, like, exploit a lot of the intelligence off of that laptop, including contacts, phone numbers, lots of intelligence we could have exploited if we would have been able to do it right away, all of which was old by the time we got it. And then we found a lot of really weird videos and pictures of, like, graphic content, including animals. I'll just say this. Zarqawi was pretty much a sociopath. By 2005, I I felt like we were still scrambling around asking, how do we stem the tide of this violence? If we aren't articulating any strategies to build things around the country that can actually counter the violence. Otherwise, we're just it's just like a constant game of whack-a-mole. I mean, 
we were still trying to figure out what's our main goal in Iraq. I mean, we didn't have one, certainly right after the invasion. We didn't have any kind of plan for how do we deal with, like, helping rebuild or maintain an infrastructure. How do we make sure that they can provide jobs and build an economy? How do we make sure people have electricity and food right after the invasion? What's the overarching end goal for a government that's formed? What's the overarching end goal for letting them have autonomy to form what kind of government they want? I mean, we just didn't have, I think, those those really like basic things in place prior to the invasion. And we couldn't articulate, well, what's our end goal for when we feel like Iraq has become independent? By that time, I just felt like I was the last person standing on so many of those teams that had started out there. And it was more than time for me to go and hand this off to somebody else because I just felt ineffective. Like, if we can't, if we don't have an end game to this, what am I here for? So I went ahead and took a job that was definitely a different speed. I worked um, for our National Resources Division, which focuses on collecting information and intelligence against foreign entities within the United States. So if it's, you know, scientists coming from China that are trying to steal government secrets or whatever it may be. About three months after I left, there ended up being a detainee that was very close to Zarqawi that gave them information on his place and time of where he would be. This guy was close to Zarqawi, close to understanding his schedule, what his motives are and his strategy, and who is close, you know, around him. So they end up bombing the house where Zarqawi is, is located, and special operations forces were able to actually recover the body of Zarqawi and identify him. I was on a work trip, and I was nowhere near any kind of secure communication stuff that I could call my colleagues and find out more details or look up more details. I was in a hotel lobby, and I walked into the lobby, and my colleague at the time said, go look at the TV screen, go look at the TV screen. So I just went, out, went over there, and I just saw the cryon scrolling across that said that he had been killed. You know, I was so relieved on one hand because it just seemed like taking out somebody whose whole main ideological focus was just killing everybody as an opportunity was beneficial for Iraqis. He had killed so many Iraqis up to that point. And I was happy that my colleagues were able to, to at least accomplish this piece. At the same time, I knew this just wasn't the end of anything, that this iteration of this organization would continue to flourish. They had been existing for way, way too long. They had galvanized a lot of support. They had a lot of people that were foreign fighters and indigenous Iraqis that had been recruited and working with them and trained on all these tactics. And now all these people have all this expertise. It was a relief on one hand, but on another, it was depressing, knowing that this was not going to end. I was actually in CIA total for about 10 years. And I think, ultimately, it's not surprising that I ended up with PTSD eventually. 
because it was just this constant flood of violence. I didn't really understand at the time the impact that it would probably have on me. And I think it just depends on how much of this are you being flooded with. How much of this violent content, how much exposure, you know, in real life. It wasn't something that I had even thought about much later after leaving the CIA, that that would even be a possibility. I really um, hit me after I had slowed down. So I was just working as a consultant. So I was working for myself. I had a lot more downtime and then had to revisit some of these issues when I did an HBO documentary called Manhunt. And it was after that that I realized my response to some of this isn't normal. And not only that, but it's just, you know, manifested as me not wanting to go out in public and I was hugely claustrophobic after a while I never did get over the like loud sounds issue (laughs) and feeling like that constant alertness that PTSD causes and I just became overwhelming and debilitating which I had no choice but to get some help I found a therapist and a psychiatrist that were familiar with PTSD and trauma worked with them extensively and Medication, initially, that helped a lot. It just resets your brain just like, you know, cholesterol drugs would do that for you. It's just essentially a reset to try to even out the neurological functions that are happening inside your brain. And then after consistent therapy, after a year, it was like I finally started to feel a little bit like myself prior to all of this. Nada Bako spent a decade in the CIA. She describes her experiences in the book, The Targeter, My Life in the CIA, Hunting Terrorists and Challenging the White House. I Spy is a production of Foreign Policy. Our executive editor is Dan Efron. Rob Sachs, Amy McKinnon, and Dan Haverty helped produce today's show. The interview with Bacchus was conducted by Dan Efron. If you have tips or suggestions, please write to us, ispy at foreignpolicy.com. If you like the show, please subscribe on your favorite platform and leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. When you come home Foreign Policy subscribers can sign up to get bonus episodes each week in your podcast app. Go to foreignpolicy.com slash iSpy. If you're not a subscriber, you can still get access to additional excerpts and interviews by joining iSpy+. For details, go to foreignpolicy.com slash iSpy. You'll also find a link to our Facebook page where you can get the latest updates and hear directly from the producers of iSpy. Next week on the show, CIA officer Milt Bearden helps a Soviet defector track down an old lover. But the story doesn't end well. Yurchenko rings the doorbell, all expectant of you know, love and kisses, and she opens the door and kind of takes one look at him, and she says, don't think I'm going to be in love with a traitor. You're on your own. That's next week on I Spy. I'm Margot Martindale. We'll be waiting for